Chapter 8, Part 2 of Dead Love Has Chains by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8, Part 2 They were to dine at Hertford Street at half-past seven as it was an opera night, Don Giovanni, the old music they both adored, having that uneducated love of music which must be sustained with melody. Irene was in beauty again when they met the other two at the gate. A pity you lost the race, said Mansfeld. There was some fine riding, and Middlemore's horse won by half a length. Middlemore? The owner of the favorite. The man who was talking to me when you and Miss Thelliston joined us. Oh, is that his name? Irene knew him in Cashmere. At least he was an acquaintance of her cousin's. Not a very desirable acquaintance, I should think. But if he's a friend of yours, I have nothing to say against him. I don't think there is anything to be said against him, except that he wasn't popular in his regiment. His father was a manufacturer somewhere in the north, and Middlemore had plenty of money when he was in the regiment, and I believe he spent it royally. But if his money is gone, how does he come by a racing stable? Oh, his father is rich enough to keep him going. He's an only son, and he married an American girl, a millionaire's orphan daughter from Boston, very refined and nice, but not handsome. Was she with him today? No, she crossed the Atlantic in her coffin last March to lie in the family vault with her New England ancestors. This was while they waited for the motor. There was not much more talk after they had taken their seats, and Conrad had his mind and his hands occupied in steering through the crowd of carriage people who hated motors, and motor people who hated other motors. No time for more than an occasional word to the two girls sitting behind him, muffled in their white cloaks and veils, no opportunity for any confidences till the Mercedes stopped before the white door in Chapel Street and Irene alighted. "'Only a quarter of an hour to dress,' said Conrad, as he handed her out. "'I shall send the motor back for you.' "'Please don't trouble. I can have a cab.' "'Too slow. My mother is a dragon of punctuality.' Irene was nearly as white as her chiffon frock when she appeared in Lady Mary's drawing-room and again Conrad protested that it was his fault for having kept her on the lawn in the glaring sunshine. She had struggled against that deadly faintness during her hurried toilette, the maid doing everything that her own active hands usually did, and dressing her as if she had been a doll. She dared not look at herself in the glass. A great dread had come upon her since she had known that Henry Middlemore was free. She talked gaily enough to satisfy her lover while they were at dinner and afterwards at the opera when the curtain was down. Him she might deceive, but she saw Lady Mary watching her with an uneasy expression. She, who was in the secret of the past, no doubt divined that a worse trouble than a walk in the afternoon sun had blanched that perfect face. Happily there was no dance that Saturday night, nowhere to go after the opera, which was over early. Sir Michael and his wife were dining out and had not come home when Lady Mary's landau brought Irene to her door, and her lover murmured his last fond words at parting. No row tomorrow, but you would not be well enough to ride if it were a lawful day. I shall call early to ask about you, but you mustn't come down to breakfast or go and sit in a stifling church. If you have rested and are well enough for a stroll in Hamilton Gardens, at one o'clock I will get my aunt's key. You shan't be stared at and pointed at in the park. "'Pray don't keep Lady Mary waiting.' She was glad when the door closed upon him. His tenderness could not comfort her. All around her was dark. She felt as if she had suddenly become blind and must grope her way among unknown obstacles. There was a letter lying on the hall table, 
A thick letter with a large staring scarlet seal, like a gout of blood, she thought. The servant picked it up and carried it to her on a salver as she went towards the staircase. A messenger brought it, ma'am, after ten o'clock. She had divined, without seeing the address, that it was for her. A carriage stopped at the door as she ran upstairs, and she heard her father's voice in the hall before she could get into her room. The dinner party had been later than usual, and no one but the servants had seen the letter. She locked her door to keep out the French maid who was Lady Thelliston's servant, and who had very little respite from her assistance in those elaborate arts which maintain fictitious beauty. What scanty leisure she had was at Miss Thelliston's service, and she was called a joint maid. Irene switched on the light and flung herself into a chair by the open window to read her letter. She knew the hand too well, too well. How many surreptitious scraps of notes had been secretly delivered in her book, in her fan, in the loop of a sash, in a bunch of tropical flowers. Dear, dear letters they had been to her in those foolish days, before the knowledge of evil. Letters telling her she had looked lovelier than ever at the ball last night had danced divinely, in a word that she was adorable. Oh, that delicious pink frock! You were like Venus in a rosy cloud. I think there is something of that sort in Virgil. Adorable, adorable, adorable! The scraps of bold, manly writing all sang the same song. All told her she was lovely and beloved, and all pleaded for more intimate moments, a walk in the compound in the moonlight, a tete-a-tete ride some sweet solitude of two that was to be managed somehow, some evasion of her chaperone, some escape from the crowd. His brain was fertile in expedients. He was always telling her how to elude the people whose duty it was to take care of her, always teaching her how to deceive. Those little scraps of praise and love had been very dear, for it was thrilling to the inexperienced girl to know herself the central point of a strong man's thoughts, the absorbing interest of his life, to be told of sleepless nights spent in thinking of her, of days that were pain and grief because they had to be spent away from her. And now the same strong penmanship was a thing of horror, a thing that recalled the folly, the degradation of that miserable past. Every word in that long letter was like a drop of molten lead, for to her the letter might mean doom. My darling, I have spent a weary hour hunting for your address. The beautiful Miss Thelliston. That's what people call you. I had heard of the beautiful Miss Thelliston, but I had actually forgotten your surname, and it never occurred to me that this much admired she was my Haiti, my child wife, the only girl I ever loved with the whole force and passion of my soul. Ah, dearest child, you cannot have forgotten the night when I lay at your feet, and would have gladly died there rather than take up the burden of life with another woman but I had to take up my burden. The fragile creature to whom I had pledged myself would have died if I had forsaken her. Those who knew her best, the aunt who had brought her up, the cousin who was like a sister, had warned me that to her sensitive nature disillusion would be fatal. It was not her fortune that tempted me, for my expectations from my father made me careless of that. I had to choose between my divine girl and the woman older than me by a year— who believed in me and depended upon me for the happiness of her life. Irene would soon forget the romantic dream of an Indian summer, a fairy tale of the hills and rose gardens. But my Boston sweetheart would not forget. She had given me the deep love of a thoughtful self-contained woman. I could not cheat her. 
She was a dear and devoted wife, and I think she was happy with me. She never knew that she was not the first and only woman who had ever held my heart. She died in my arms after a year of troubled health, during which I did everything that care and science could do to keep her alive. She left me rich and childless, free to begin life again, but with very little interest in anything except my racing stud, which had amused and pleased her, and in a rubber at bridge. Then in a moment your face flashed upon me, and I knew that life was worth living. I am free, dearest. I am a free man now. The times are changed since that day when I stood before your cousin feeling like a beaten hound, pretending that I had thought of you only as an enchanting child, the sweet companion of an idle day. You, you, the girl I adored, my Haiti, my bride. Well, it was hard lines for us both, but we have a long life of happiness waiting for us, a life that will make amends. You are still in the dawn of girlhood very little older than in those wild days, and ever so much lovelier. I am not by any means an old fogey, and to have you for my own will make me young again. Dearest, let it be soon. Every day will seem an age till I have you in my arms, my own, till death. We can be married quietly, and just slip away to Italy on our way to India, and that romantic valley where we met— Think how delicious it would be to revisit the place where we were so happy, to wander once again in those enchanting scenes where we first knew the rapture of mutual love. For my own part, I think it will save all troublesome explanations if we keep everything dark till after we are safely married and have left England. You can meet me in the park some morning, and we can be married by special license at the least frequented church in your parish. But if, on the other hand, you prefer to tell your father that you are going to marry me, Having known and liked me years ago as a chance acquaintance in Kashmir, he will naturally inquire about my means. In that case, you can tell him I can afford to make a liberal settlement, and that I feel sure I can satisfy him. My wife left me all her fortune, including her property in Yorkshire, an estate bought soon after our marriage, big farms and substantial homesteads, a fine park and a picturesque Jacobean house, which I know my Irene will love as she will love the horses that have been my one extravagance of late years. But my bright bird shall never be caged in her country home an hour longer than she is supremely happy there. She shall have all the world to roam over at her own sweet will, with a husband whose delight will be to please her. Let me have a letter tomorrow morning by a messenger. This hotel is not half a mile from your house. Your devoted, Hal. Saturday night, the Carlton Hotel. This was his letter. This was the offer that he made in good faith, never for a moment doubting her acceptance. She belonged to him by that shameful past, that past of which he could write so lightly, having known only the sweetness of it. One bad half-hour with her chaperone, one passionate outbreak of remorse in the dead of the Indian night, just a few curses and groans and tears, and his price had been paid. He loved and he rode away, the light love was forgotten, perhaps, and had only revived at sight of her a new fancy, selfish, impetuous as the old passion. And her year of ignominy and suffering, that unhappy time in which she hardly dared to lift her eyes before the few people who came to her aunt's house, the priest, the parson, the hunting squire and his wife and daughters. Her aunt's friends were not many, but she hated them all. 
Her pride grew fiercer in that secret humiliation. No one knew. No one was ever to know. Her aunt, Mrs. Fitzpatrick, was a resolute managing woman, but not unkind, not without compassion. The youth of the victim weighed with her. The father had thought chiefly or solely of the disgrace, the trouble, and inconvenience for himself. His sister could pity the girl whose innocence had been the cause of her fall. Irene's health had broken down soon after her arrival in Ireland, and she had been ill enough to be kept in seclusion, waited on and nursed by her aunt, till the hour of her new trial drew near, and then aunt and niece went unattended to an obscure seaside village in the west, more than a hundred miles from Mrs. Fitzpatrick's home, and here, though the aunt gave her own name, the niece was described as Mrs. Brown, whose husband was soldiering in India. Mrs. Fitzpatrick's air of impeccable respectability, a certain authoritativeness that argued social status, left no room for question. The landlady was delighted to have such lodgers at the end of the season when her usual tenants were gone. Tonight, sitting with her hands clasped above her head, and Henry Middlemore's letter before her, Irene lived over that dreadful time. Imagination brought back the moaning of the Atlantic in the long, sleepless nights, while she thought of what her life was to be as the mother of a nameless child. Love had died the death between the night of agonized farewell and these hours of weary waiting. And when her aunt, sitting by her bed in the deep of night, when she felt in her utter weakness as if she were drifting upon a sluggish river, drifting to darkness and ease, told her very gently that her child was dead, and that her secret and her shame had died with him, she had neither the sorrow of a woman with the maternal instinct, nor the thankfulness of a worldling. She thought and hoped that she too would soon be dead, and that she had come to the last link in the chain of misery. Had he not made her suffer, this man who wrote so glibly, and offered her the delight of revisiting the scenes fraught with such bitter memories? What of happiness had she ever known from the night they parted till she met Conrad Harling and knew the meaning of a good man's love? her dearest, her truest, most generous, most chivalrous of men, in whose large heart no taint of self-love had ever entered. And was she to surrender that noble lover, to give herself to the man whose sensual passion had blighted her life, the unscrupulous seducer, who could not respect the innocence of a girl just escaped from a school where evil things were unknown, where every book and every lesson, every allusion to the outer world, was chosen with a studious reverence for youthful purity, this man must be answered. She knew how impatient, how persistent he could be, how, in that brief time when she had begun to fear him, with some instinctive prescience of her danger, he had pursued every advantage, seized upon every opportunity of that unconventional life, how he had hunted and waylaid her. He would have to be answered, and at once. She was long writing that answer, though her letter was brief. The church clock struck two before she had addressed and sealed it. The past is past, she began. It was more dreadful to me than you can ever know. I have only one favor to ask. Forget me as I have tried to forget you. I am going to marry a man whom I dearly love, and I know that you are too honorable, and I hope you are too kind to come between me and that great happiness. Let the dead bury their dead. I have never reproached you. I have never breathed your name to anyone belonging to me. No one knows how cruel you were to a helpless girl. No one will ever know from my lips. Perhaps you think it would be a kind of reparation if you were to marry me. But believe me, there is only one reparation in your power, 
and that is to be a stranger to me for the rest of our lives. There was no signature. Her penmanship would be sufficient evidence against her should he be wicked enough to show her letter to anyone who knew her. But that was a depth of infamy of which she could not suppose him capable. Reparation. That was what his letter meant. Their marriage was to make everything happy. And that miserable past was to be thought of as a fairy tale of girlish love. A memory of days that had been sweet, to be dwelt upon in sentimental moments amidst the security of married life. This was the man she ought to marry, this man whose coarse mind could conceive no shame in the remembrance of sin. She was bound to him by that shameful past. He had the right to claim her. He was the only man upon earth to whom she could go as a bride without dishonor. She could realize this stern truth, and yet reject his offer, resolved to give herself only to the man she loved, her preux chevalier, her Phoebus Apollo, radiant in the glory of enchanting youth, frank, joyous, a creature made for happiness, made to be adored. She had discovered a likeness in Conrad's clear-cut Greek features to the Belvedere Apollo. He had the same outlook, his head had the same poise, and he loved her with a passion as pure as it was strong, loved her with a love that sees something of divinity in the chosen wife. It was four o'clock before she fell asleep, and then sleep was worse than waking, for Henry Middlemore's image was mixed with the trouble of her dreams. When the maid brought the morning tea, she sent her to Lady Thelliston to say that she had a bad headache and would not leave her room till after church time. She would get up at about eleven o'clock, she told the maid, and would want no help in dressing, after her clothes were put out. The white crepe frock, the pansy tuck, and so forth. If Mr. Harding called, he was to be told she would be in the drawing-room at a quarter to one, ready to go for a walk. And then she drank her tea, and lay down again, trying to compose herself, trying to bring the color back to her pallid cheeks, the brightness to her haggard eyes. She badly wanted to sleep. She longed to sink into the gulf of oblivion, the darkness where memory and pain are not. That deep oblivion would not come at her bidding, only fitful snatches of slumber, with intervals of restlessness, fretful movements, rebellion against fate. Had she not suffered enough? Had she not a right to be happy after those quenching fires, that heavy price paid for sin? Duty, truth, honor. Those were mere words when weighed in the balance against happiness and love. She knew that, if she kept her secret, she could make Conrad happy. She knew that to tell him the story of her fall would be to make him miserable, perhaps to plunge him again into the darkness of that living death of the lunatic asylum, he whose exuberant nature was made for the glory of life, made to be happy and to diffuse gladness. Conrad's card was lying on the hall table when she went downstairs at twelve o'clock and crept out of the house to post her letter. A messenger was of course impossible. The man must wait till Monday morning for her answer. He would be angry, no doubt, surprised and indignant at her refusal, but she did not think he would try to injure her. There was a pillar post a few doors off, and her absence had lasted less than five minutes. The footman looked surprised when he opened the door for her, no one having heard her go out. Mr. Harding called at nine o'clock to inquire for you, ma'am. Brixham gave him your message, and he said he would be here soon after twelve. She had only been just in time with her letter. Conrad appeared before she had been in the drawing-room five minutes, enchanted to find her waiting for him, ready for their Sunday morning walk, full of solicitude about her health, 
needing to be assured that she had quite recovered from the headache that his folly had caused. They went to Hamilton Gardens, Conrad rejoicing in the little bit of solitude they might have before people came out of church, Irene's share of the conversation being performed very feebly. She had seen Henry Middlemore on the other side of the way as they crossed Hill Street, and she thought that he might be going to the house to make some inquiry about her, after being disappointed of a letter in the morning. Oh, the horror of it all! If he were going to dog her footsteps, to haunt her, to hunt her down! She had tried to believe it was impossible that he should persecute her, that he must have some generous feeling, some touch of remorse that would induce him to spare her, when once he realized that her love was dead, that another and a better love had come into its place. He knew nothing yet, and no doubt was acting upon the presumption that she still loved him and would forgive everything for love's sake. And then there was something else that he did not know. The slow fire of shame, the shame that had burnt into her heart and brain and had killed the love. She was glad when the gate closed behind them, and they were walking in the exclusive Eden, where the few could escape from the many. I want to talk of something very serious, Conrad said, and seeing her sudden scared look, My dearest, don't be frightened. It isn't anything gloomy or horrid. I want you to fix our wedding day. We are always talking about it as coming soon, and I know your frocks are being made, but we have been vague so far. Let it be soon, love, very soon. They were alone in the shelter of the trees, and he could even venture to slip his arm through hers and draw her a little nearer to him, his ear on the alert for approaching footsteps. When shall it be, love? You must settle that with my stepmother. I'm afraid she'll want to make a fuss and invite people, my father's friends, most of them soldiers. Let it be as soon as she likes. I want to belong to you, Conrad. I want to be sure that we are bound to each other for life. He was enraptured at her speech, the most direct avowal of love he had ever had from her. My sweet girl, you have filled my cup of bliss. I'll talk to Lady Thelliston after lunch. She can order the invitation cards tomorrow morning. They ought to be ready in twenty-four hours. And a fortnight's invitation will be enough. Wedding invitations are generally much longer. That's only to give people time to buy presents. We don't want candlesticks or paper knives, do we? What can I want? You have loaded me with lovely things. Nothing half lovely enough. The jewelers have no new ideas. They can only offer one something that they made last week for a duchess or a countess. They have no new departures. One must go to Italy for an idea. They walked in the gardens till half-past one, no longer in blissful solitude, but meeting people they knew every five minutes. They were on the way back to Chapel Street when in the little street by Dorchester House they came into a group of people and stopped to talk, and while Conrad was monopolized by a loquacious dowager, Irene found Henry Middlemore at her side. She had not seen him coming, did not know where he had sprung from. "'I hope you haven't forgotten me, Miss Thelliston,' he said, offering his hand, and then he went on in a much lower voice. "'No letter. If you knew how I am devoured by impatience.' I posted my answer an hour ago. Cruel. I shan't get it till tomorrow. An eternity. People were talking all round her, yet she was in an agony lest Conrad should hear. She broke in upon the dowager's discourse. We shall be very late for luncheon, she said. Middlemore lifted his hat and went away. But those few words, his persistence in talking to her when she was among people, had given her an agony of fear. The chattering group dispersed. 
There was no escape from that woman, Conrad said. That was the man we met yesterday, wasn't it? The man whose horse won? Yes. What a presuming cad to talk to you. She did not answer him. She walked by his side in dull silence. Middlemore's persistence filled her with dread. He had waited for her while she was in the gardens, watched her and followed her when she came out. Despair came upon her suddenly as she realized her peril. A word, a look, from this man might awaken Conrad's suspicions. He would question her, drive her to distraction, force her to prevaricate and to lie. And doubt, once awakened, the fierce suspicion of jealous love, he would not rest till he had dragged her secret from her, would not be appeased till the veil was rent from that disgraceful story, and he knew her for the thing she was. And then to be thrown off and abandoned, to see the warm, fond lover turned into a man of stone, cruel to himself as to her, inflexible even in his despair. She had learnt to know his way of thinking, all his opinions, prejudices, beliefs. And she knew that an unvirtuous woman was hateful in his eyes. She had watched his countenance when improper people had been discussed in his presence, lightly, with a smoothing over of hard facts, and she knew that in his mind there was no indulgence for sin. His chivalrous ideas about women were allied with a severity as of the seventeenth-century Puritans. She hardly knew how she lived through the rest of the day. She dined at home and went with Lady Telliston to a rather prim evening party where she was to meet Conrad and his mother. She tried to avoid Lady Mary, feeling that those keen, clear eyes would read her trouble, might even divine the cause, and know that her first lover had come back into her life. She heard two men talking of him as the owner of yesterday's winner. "'Not half a bad fellow, very popular in his own part of the country. An invalid wife, died at Cannes last winter. They want him to take the hounds next season, plenty of money.' And then the conversation changed and she heard no more of him. It was a dull party, though there were three or four well-known politicians and more than one artistic and literary celebrity in the little crowd. There was no music— and by a quarter past eleven everybody had gone on or had gone home. Conrad had hardly left Irene's side, and she had tried to talk lightly and to seem gay. He told her of his satisfactory conversation with her stepmother. The wedding invitations were to be ordered next morning and sent out on Wednesday, a ten days' invitation. And now you have only to make up your mind about the honeymoon. Where shall we go? To what secluded nook in Switzerland? or on the Italian side of Mont Blanc, and then down into Italy, to Locano, Pavino, Stresa, to be together and alone in that divine country. Think what bliss! All this was spoken in confidential tones while they sat under an awning on the balcony in a thicket of palms. He was radiant with the assurance of happiness, expectant of a life without a cloud. He asked about the bridesmaids. Had she chosen them, and how many? Daisy, of course, must be one of them. My stepmother insisted upon six bridesmaids, girls whose mothers were her bridesmaids. She knows crowds of people. I know she has asked your cousin, and Miss Meredith has kindly consented to be one of the six. My father and I would have liked a quiet wedding, just one bridesmaid, but I suppose Lady Mary would think that kind of thing rather discreditable. Oh, I dare say she will approve of Lady Thelliston's plans. She will like a little fuss. But if I could marry you tomorrow morning in the quietest church in London, some dear old city church, St. Andrew's, Holborn, for instance, and whisk you off to Lucerne in the Engadine Express, 
I should think myself the most blessed of men. She sat by his side in silence, with a heart of ice, remembering how that other man had pleaded for a quiet wedding, and a swift flight to fairer scenes, to that unutterably beautiful world, the valley girl round with snow mountains where they had met and loved and parted. She let her hand lie in Conrad's, and he bent down and kissed it in the shadow of the palms. The beautiful head, with the short crisp brown hair, bent down to worship her, and while he worshipped, there was another man claiming her as if by an indefeasible right. She rode in the park with her father and Conrad next morning, rejoicing in her Arab's freshness and the gallop that brought the color back to her cheeks. Between Stanhope Gate and the row she had time to think what an escape it would be if she could bring about an accident, make her horse bolt with her and break his neck and hers over the railings. She remembered a favorite novel in which she had read of such a catastrophe, and how in the story sudden death had solved a problem, as it might solve the problem of her life. If she were killed that morning, Conrad would never know. His mother would not break her oath. Lady Mary would be content to know that he was released from the bond she hated, and death would cancel Henry Middlemore's claim. Conrad reproached her for riding wildly. "'If you ride with such a loose rein, I shall be afraid to let you ride to hounds,' he said. He had talked to her of the hunting next year, and that he might take the hounds perhaps by and by. They were to winter in Egypt, but there might be a chance of some good sport in March when they went home. Home! The word had been sweet in her ears. But now there was the blackness of impenetrable night round her, dread and almost despair. End of chapter 8, part 2